Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are going to discuss some of the nefarious and surreptitious strategies that our federal regulatory agencies are doing to manipulate these statistics to uh, control the narrative and to help us understand how they're doing that. We are joined today by Dr. Enle, Dr. H, as many people call him, who is a naturopathic physician who has uh, written a recent publication that goes into the details. So welcome and thank, and Dr. Enle is uh, out in Portland, which is of course an, an interesting community in light of what's been happening this year. Lots of riots out there and taking over the downtown area. So <laughs> welcome and thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Dr. McCall. It's a real pleasure and an honor to be here. All right. So you've written a paper uh, that was an interesting paper. It was uh, the COVID-19 data, how CDC violated federal law to inflate cases and fatalities. So why don't you discuss a little bit of, uh, I guess, about your history, how you got interested in this, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, what motivated you to write the paper? Well, um, we started on uh, March 12th looking at the data. We knew that there was going to be some, some issues. So what I started doing on March 12th was uh, going through all the data we could find from the Italian Ministry of Health and also from South Korea. Uh, we couldn't validate any of the data coming out of, of China. There was just no independent way to do it. Mm -hmm. So what we were seeing out of Italy and out of uh, South Korea was that we were gonna be concerned about um, people who are over 60, over 70 years of age with preexisting conditions. That was, that was the main thing. Uh, coming out of that data. So we were expecting the same kind of trends here. But with so much chaos, especially in uh, late February and, and March here in the United States, it was like, well, we better start looking at this data pretty close. So what I started doing was tracking the data on a daily basis from each state health department, um, and then making sure that what the CDC was reporting was matching up. And what we started to see very early on were some significant anomalies um, between what the states were reporting and what the CDC was saying. And it was, it was concerning because the variance was growing with each day um, in the data. So, you know, um, we have an old saying, I'm, a, I'm an old data collector. <laughs> so we say when gar garbage in equals garbage out. And that was the concern because we knew the uh, public health policies are going to be based upon the data. So accuracy is of the paramount importance. Um, and then we started delving in a little bit deeper into how the CDC was supposedly collecting their data. And that's where we saw the uh, NBSS, the National Vital Statistics Systems, March 24th um, guidelines on it, which were very concerning. And we saw the CDC adopt the Council for State and Territorial Epidemiologists paper on April 14th. And what was incredibly concerning about this, Dr. McCullough, was that um, it was all done without any federal oversight, and it was out, all done without any public comment, uh, especially scientific comment. 
Um, and uh, that became increasingly problematic, especially when we started to see discrepancies in the state of New York alone of, in, on the thousands, in the thousands of fatalities, what the statement of New York was so, reporting. Well, why oh, don't we me. stop there? Because in March, it, this is a really important part of the data that you dug out is that there was a shift, this change in the, the de definition of what a fatality was. So why don't you walk us through what the definition was before March 24th and what the what it changed to after that date, and then who in the agency had the authority to make that change without any supervisory uh, contribution? Well, prior to COVID-19 and 2020, uh, we had uh, what was called uh, a handbook for on death reporting um, that has been in use since 2003. And it's been in use really without incident. And the key feature of it is that on a death certificate, there are two key sections. There's uh, part one, which is gonna talk about cause of death. And then there's part two, which is gonna talk about contrib contributions to death. Now, contributions to death are not necessarily gonna be statistically recorded. It's just a fact of, of to have a thorough record. But part one is very important for statistical counting. And what we saw in that March 24th document specifically was that they were saying that COVID-19 should be listed in part one for statistical tracking, but in cases where it is proven to cause death or what was key, assumed to have caused death. And what was really concerning about this document was that it specifically stated that any pre-existing conditions should be moved from part one, where it has been put for 17 years, down into part two. And so it was basically taking this and saying, we're going to create exclusive rules for COVID-19, and we're going to do a 180 for this single you know, disease, virus, whatever you want, however you want to look at it. And we're going to create rules exclusive for this. And with that, the, the big problem with that is now you remove the ability for a medical examiner, a coroner, a physician to interpret based upon their um, collective health history of that patient who's unfortunately passed away. You remove their expertise and you say you have to count this as COVID-19. And that takes on an added measure when you incentivize it financially. And that's what we saw with some of the Medicare and Medicaid payouts. And that was very concerning. Now, to answer your second question, who has the authority to do this? The answer should be no one. The answer should be a federal agency has the ability to propose a data change. And in proposing a data change, they're supposed to register it in the federal register, which then initiates two things. Number one is federal oversight by the Office of Management and Budget. And then number two is a opportunity for public comment on it. And without registering it, there is gonna be no oversight. There is gonna be no public comment and what's happened essentially is that the people who enacted it just went ahead and did it. They acted unilaterally, and that's not how our democracy is supposed to work. Yeah, have you, have you uh, has your investigation been able to identify the specific culprits within the agency who made this decision, or is it hidden? It, it, we haven't been able to, and that's why the thrust of this paper, the, the spinoff, if you will, for this paper is we have sent out formal grand jury investigation petitions uh, to every U.S. attorney and the Department of Justice 
requesting a thorough, independent, transparent investigation of this because they would have the ability to call a grand jury and that grand jury would have the ability to subpoena all those records to determine which people uh, were at fault. Okay, so that that sounds just in and of itself pretty nefarious and, and a crime and should be investigated. But the implications of that transition, that shift, that change in the definition of the cause of death that occurred in March of this year had dramatic implications or consequences mm-hmm. on how this pandemic uh, was take, impacted our lives. So we've got a few questions in there, but why, why don't you help us understand in more detail how, how dramatic uh, a, a, a change occurred when they made this shift in the, in the definition? I mean, what the, what the consequences of that? that sure. Well, well, the consequences, I'm, if it's all right, I'm going to just reference the paper because I'm hoping sure. some of the folks will want to read through the paper and yeah. you know decide it, for themselves. It's, it's open access. It's available online, right? 100%. It's peer reviewed. It's been, uh, we, we've accumulated, Dr. Mercola, uh, uh, about 10,000 hours of collective team research into this. It's been reviewed by nine attorneys and a judge for accuracy. It's been gone through the peer review process before being published. It's we feel like it's tight. You Good. Know. Good. Um, so on page 20 of the paper, we have a big graphic and that graphic shows what the estimated um, actual fatality count should have been as of August 23rd of this year. So what was reported on August 23rd was 161,392 fatalities mm-hmm. caused by COVID-19. Okay, and this is just just to repeat, you said if I just want to make make it clear, this is mm-hmm. August twenty third. Correct. So a few months ago. A few months ago, correct. Um, had we used, had around the country we used the guidelines from two thousand three that the CDC published. These guidelines come from the CDC. So why we are creating a new set of guidelines for COVID nineteen is beyond me. These have been working fine. Wow, well, we're going to talk about why this, because <laughs> I'm sure you and I both have some suspicions. Yeah, we have suspicions for sure. And uh, but by comparison, so using the new rules from March 24th, 161,392 fatalities as of August 23rd. Had we used the 2003 guidelines, our estimates are that we would have roughly 9,684 total fatalities due to COVID-19. That's a significant difference. That's a difference on the scale of, uh, of really as much as 96 percent the range that we came up with and calculated dr mccola was uh 88.9 percent to 96 percent inflation that that is crazy so i'm curious as to how this syncs up with the shift in the in the or at least it wasn't a shift it was an acknowledgement by the cdc in late august of this Mm -hmm. year Mm -hmm. that the people who died of COVID-19 by themselves was only 94% of the numbers that they gave. And the others had significant coexisting, uh, significant comorbidities that contributed to it. So is, is this uh, a parallel confirmation or how, how, do you, how do you align those two data points together? Our suspicion, um, and I, let me read that exact quote from the, from the CDC that, that you're referencing. Um, for deaths with conditions or causes, in addition to COVID-19, on average, there were 2.6 additional conditions or causes per death. That means that the average person that was listed as a COVID-caused death had 
uh, 2.6 pre-existing conditions, diabetes, mm -hmm. um, renal failure, you know, uh, COPD, obesity, obesity, sure. you know, just yeah. major vitamin risk D, factors, vitamin D deficiency, Oh, all over the place. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Probably the grandest thing we've seen in this. Well, it's one of the big ones, but it's not the only one for sure. For sure. For sure. Um, so, um, you know, to speak to that point, uh, you know, when you, when you look at, when you look at this for absolute 100% accuracy, we'd have to do something like we were just alerted to by a whistleblower this week out of the state of Florida, where they've actually gone in and re-examined every single um, death certificate and the medical records with them. And what they found was that roughly um, 80 um, eighty percent of the fatalities should have been or are were wrongfully classified as uh, as COVID nineteen yeah fatalities. Eighty so percent um, in the carefully individually analyzed correct. data in Florida. Is that the entire state of Florida? Or was it the entire state of Florida? Yes. Wow. They, that's they where I live. Back. So that's it's relative to me or relatively important to me, but it's certainly to the whole country because that, I mean, that confirms what the CDC mm -hmm. data suggests and what you've, you've identified. I mean, that's pretty incredible. If you think about it, the, the, that they're able to get away with this and, and use that, you know, you see the, the I just want to interject here is mm -hmm. that the mainstream media is justifying this course of action based on science yes. and the, the foundation of the science really is focused on the accuracy of the people who are dying. Otherwise it's absolutely inflated and it's, and we're making decisions that are at best inappropriate and at worst causing far more complications than there's out. The, the collateral damage is extensive. Uh, we have not even seen accurate counts on the number of suicides, but we have reports that they're up by as high as uh, 1,600% uh, this year. That's uh, 16 we have, times. That's 16 One times. Fixed. That's crazy. Yeah. We, we haven't seen the final reports on the number of businesses, especially small businesses, family-owned businesses that have gone out of business this year. Uh, but the suspicion is that we're in the hundreds of thousands um, there. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, when we look at the potential mental, and this is something that's very dear to my heart, there's, there's two things about this doc that really bother me. The first is that uh, what is the mental health impact to our children? And what is the long-term mental health impact to our children? That That is of a grave concern to me right do you now. Have, especially. Do you have children? I do. I'm a dad. First right. and foremost, I'm a dad, right. you know. Um, and then the second thing, um, you know, I, I lost my mother in uh, in 2002. And, you know, I think the the grace of it all is was that we were able to get her out of the hospital and fulfill her last request, which was to pass away in her bed with family around her. And I just grieve for every single person who's lost someone this year who did, was not able to be there. Americans should not have to die alone because we're worried about some virus that they're telling us is, is a problem when the data, even the data that we know to be inflated and fraudulent is, is still doesn't suggest the virility that, uh, that you know, they want us to believe. 
I, I just have a problem when I see with the thought of Americans dying alone, especially our elders dying alone when their loved ones can't get into the seat. And that, that just that rubs me the wrong way in a big way. Yeah, it is definitely one of the largest uh, atrocious crimes being committed or that has been committed and uh, potentially will continue to be in light of what appears to be new lockdowns that are being implemented for this coming winter that they love to refer to as the dark winter. Mm -hmm. They're, they're, they're good. (laughs) The, the, The powers that be are good. So why don't you continue with the, with the paper, because you really go into uh, a lot of details. As you, as you mentioned, there's thousands, 10,000 hours that went into collab, collecting this data and, and writing it. Well, if I could, I'd like to go over some, uh, we, we put together a timeline in the paper because I thought this yes. was important for, for people reading it to, to understand. Um, in 1980, we see the Paperwork Reduction Act come on. And, and prior to that, actually, in 1946, we see the Administrative Procedures Act come on. These are federal laws. These are saying that if you're a federal agency, if you work within a federal agency, you have rules, explicit laws that you have to follow to make sure that we can maintain transparency and trust between people and the government bodies. And this, this, is, this is visionary kind of work uh, going on. And in 1995, uh, we see the uh, Paperwork Reduction Act amended to really put the Office of Management and Budget at the forefront of oversight of all the data. So, so this isn't some new kind of concept. This has been going on now 25 years. And then October uh, 2002, we get the Information Quality Act, which doubles down even further on the extreme importance of accuracy and integrity in data, that if you're a federal agency, you have an obligation to the people of this country to make sure that the data you're publishing is not only accurate, but that it is transparent. And that is something that when we look through these laws and we had our attorneys on the team guiding us, it was really, these were, these were guiding lights for us. I was like, oh my goodness, this isn't, this, this is all laid out for us. It's really, really nice. And so then we get into some interesting stuff. 2005, the Virology Journal publishes uh, research demonstrating that hydroxychloroquine has strong antiviral effects on SARS-CoV, not SARS-CoV-2, primate cells. Um, and this was hailed by Dr. Fauci, which was kind of interesting. Uh, so that, was, that was 18 years ago. The, that was 18 years ago. The first, oh, the first identified corona, uh, epidemic-wise corona infection. Right, 15, yeah. They've been on, going with us a long time, and they're part of the cold. So, uh, mm-hmm. But the one that really took off was in 2002. And they, they identified, and Fauci admitted that hydroxychloroquine works. Right. And it's on, it's all public record, you know, so that was interesting. So then the question for us, we're scientists, right? The question becomes, why don't we have detailed nationwide trials of various treatments to see which ones are going to be the most successful here in America? I mean, they're doing it in other countries. It would stand to reason. Why are we now? We do have some, to be fair, we do have some clinical trials going, but you never hear about them. And there's such a, I would, I would, I would debate that. Okay. Actually engineered a whole trial to disprove it and publish it <laughs> in the Lancet New England Journal. Uh, New England true. Journal probably being the most prestigious <laughs> journal in the world. It has the mm-hmm. highest ranking. And, and then subsequently, the data they used to justify that by Surgicare Clinic or Surgicare Clinic or some, some, some was fraudulent, absolutely fraudulent. Yeah. They, they had to retract it, to retract yeah. it. But, but they used those studies as a basis 
to stop the use of hydroxychloroquine. Chloroquine. Yeah. And I, forgive me, I, I forgot about that retraction on yeah. that. And what was interesting was that they're working on this principle of you can't unring the bell. If, if you <laughs> ring the bell, you know, it's the sound's going to go out and the accuracy of it doesn't matter. It's rung. You know what I mean? It's just you, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. You can't unring the bell. So yeah, um, they, still, they still haven't they still haven't stopped the use of it. No, you know, they, they because of that false study that said you can't do it anymore. And even mm -hmm. though the study was false, you still mm -hmm. can't use it. Right. The <laughs> only the only states I know. Right. It's not science. It's it's we're in a we're in this very weird faith based model of science, which isn't science at that point, you know. Um, but uh, what's, what's interesting, the only state that I know of that has um, approved, has, has did an end around against uh, the FDA, and I don't know if they're still doing this, was uh, Ohio. Ohio approved hydroxychloroquine for use in their, in their uh, hospitals in treatment you for know, COVID-19. It, it, in my view, that's a relatively moot issue, the fact that you can or cannot use hydroxychloroquine, because yes, it works. It works okay, mm -hmm. but you don't even need it because we have a natural product alternative that's superior. It's called quercetin. It has mm -hmm. the same mechanism of action <laughs> and you can get it at pretty much any health food store. It's a fraction of the cost and has virtually no side effects and you don't need a doctor's prescription for it. Yeah. It works the same darn way. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's, but, but it does demonstrate the in, incredible efforts they've taken to control their narrative. And, and what they want done. Yeah, uh, Doc, I, I was I knew we were in trouble when I was in this grocery store and um, saw toilet paper flying off the shelves. Meanwhile, you know, emergency and vitamin C and vitamin D and quercetin, like you mentioned, were staying on well stocked on the shelves. Or well, they started to become trouble. a short short supply of, of a month or two later. But right, when right. People, when people who really were interested in the truth and identifying, and there was a fair number, you know, understood that. And they, mm -hmm. you know, vitamin C was in shortage. Uh, D really never did, but C definitely hit the, hit the mm -hmm. brinks for a while, at least. Yeah. Your liposomal Z, uh, C was uh, hard to come by oh, yeah, for a yeah. couple well, months. It, it, it really was. I mean, we got into big, deep troubles. Like everyone did. We are not now. We've got a really good supply, but it was... It was a challenge. Yeah. And it's sad because C is such a foundational uh, Truly. approach to optimizing your overall health, but certainly your immune health. Truly. Yeah. I, I've been pointing as many people as I can to the uh, Linus Pauling Institute and their work on um, their in-depth uh, uh, peer-reviewed article on the natural uh, immunity, the in-depth analysis on it. They have over 279 references um, uh, it, you know, that just explained very clearly the importance of these key nutrients for natural adaptive immunity. Um, but, um, you know, in, in 2014, we, we see Dr. Fauci authorizes 3.7 billion to the Wuhan, uh, Institute of Virology to, so for the study of gain. On, of I, I, oh, I, sorry. I, I, go ahead. No, no, no problem. I just, I neglected to ask this question earlier. Yeah. Yeah. When you st started this, it, you were using it as a basis. This is for paperwork reduction now. Yeah. So how does that integrate into all these point data points that you're bringing out now? How, I mean, how does that impact it? What's it, what's the connection? Well, the, the, the paperwork reduction act is really about establishing oversight. 
you know, the, the, we say Paperwork Reduction Act, and I actually had a senator come back to me and say, well, that doesn't sound sexy enough you yeah. know, to get somebody's attention. Well, it's like we have to understand what the Paperwork Reduction Act is. It actually establishes the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB, which is under the executive branch. It actually establishes them as the key agency for oversight of all data in the entire government, entire federal government. So when you start seeing like IHME out of the University of Washington, which is uh, which is heavily funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the tune of what, $384 million in two installments. Um, when you see their data being used at federal levels, you go and you look at the federal register and you say, okay, where is the 30 to 60 days that we were supposed to have to comment on the use of that data? And that's uh, part of the Paperwork Reduction Act that that's the public the exactly the public comment. That's that's what it's all about. And what we saw instead was just, hey, this is what the IHME is putting out there. We're going to go with it. Well, you can't do that if you're a federal agency. You can't just grab a. Um, I don't even know what the IHME is. We actually tried to contact the IHME to to pose as donors, and they couldn't. What prove- does this stand for? the Institute for Health and Metrics Evaluation at the University of Washington. They're technically an independent organization, but they don't have any governmental designation. They're not a 501c3. They're not a 501c4. They're not a 501c6. They're just this amorphous non-governmental organization within our country for the first time. And it's, mm. it's, it's kind of concerning. We have, we're doing a little more research in that, but it's very, very concerning. Uh, because they don't have anybody they account to. Basically, you donate to the University of Washington, and then University of Washington funnels some money to the IHME and keeps a little bit for themselves. It's um, it's very it's very questionable. Uh, well, that, that really provides you with an excellent opportunity if, they, if they're not a federal agency, because it's so much easier to get FOIA requests from from uh, uh, universities. Oh, uh, interesting. They're, they're, yeah, so you can get them a lot quicker with a lot less legal hassle because usually to get it from federal agencies it could take decades literally 40 50 years right uh, and lots of legal work too but Mm -hmm. from a university it's a lot easier that's interesting we'll have to we'll have to pursue that um because we have some questions about them and we have some questions um about uh the council for state and territorial epidemiologists too which is a 501 C3. Yeah, give him a, give him a FOIA. Yeah, will do. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> so, um, so basically, it's basically it's like this. To simplify it, the Administrative Procedures Act says you've got to follow rules to get things done, and it's all for to make sure that there's transparency in government. The Paperwork Reduction Act is a, a it's all they're all law, but they're saying, hey, we're going to establish a, an agency for specifically for oversight of all agencies' data. And then you have the Information Quality Act, and that's what comes in and says, you have to meet these explicit um, criteria in order for your data to be published and analyzed as a federal agency. So those are the three big ones and why they play a big role okay. in this. All right, well, th- thanks, because it's really not intuitively obvious how that right. act uh integrates into what you're describing. So I'll let you continue. Sorry for the, or thank you for the clarification. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, so what that does is now it establishes, well, the simple question. One of the basic questions we had as, as scientists on this team was, why are so many more people in the United States dying than incomparable population dense countries around the world? Why is it so dramatically, because that's a statistical outlier and you have, you need to explain that. And what is the difference just uh, roughly? The, well, 
the the scale uh, you know just as a rough it, it's easy to say that americans are dying at 10 to 15 times more wow. frequently than I didn't any other that much i never, you don't really hear that much about that it's it's egregiously it's egregiously high and you, and um, you believe this is related completely to the the i guess uh, inflated and falsified way of diagnosing the, the fatalities you know i'm on occam's razor kind of dude yeah and yeah. uh um you know uh when we put in the amount of research that we have um, when we when our research points to that March 24th document that says we're going to do cause, we're going to do fate uh, death certificates completely 180 degrees different than we've done it for everything else for the last 17 years. It makes me start questioning some things. And actually, one of the members of our research team is in Australia. He's a, a MD in Australia. And so he did a little homework on his end to see if Australia had changed how they certified uh, death reports. Uh, they, they assigned death certificates. Australia hasn't. And so we start suspecting, and we haven't done this for every country. We're not going to make that claim. But we know it's happened here in the United States. And our suspicion is that it has not happened in other countries. And that is why we see such a, a statistical outlier in terms of uh, in terms of number of deaths in this country relative to other countries and population deaths. Okay, so why don't you continue with your story? Because it was interesting. I just was I just was curious as to what the inflation number was, but ten to fifteen is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, it's it's it might even be beyond that, sir. <laughs> you know, it's it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. So you know, when we look at this timeline, um, we see that you know in two thousand five, there's the test of hydroxychloroquine with SARS-CoV. In 2014, we see, um, and this comes from a Newsweek report, uh, we see that Dr. Fauci authorizes 3.7 million to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, we see in 2019 that there's a second funding for 3.7 million. And again, it's to specifically to study gain of function research on bat coronaviruses in both instances. So that's obviously a concern. And then something very interesting happens. October 18th, 2019, Johns Hopkins uh, Center for Health Security hosts Event 201 uh, in conjunction with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and a few other financial partners. And this was in New York World last Economic year. Forum, right, World Economic Forum. Thank you. Yes. And then November 17th, 2019, China records the first known case of COVID-19. Now, they could be completely unrelated, but for us, that's, that's a very incredible coincidence that you run a simulation a month before a pandemic basically breaks out. That's, that's, that's a little, it's a little tough for me to digest as just a coincidence. And then we get to January 29th and we get the white house coronavirus task force. The initial folks are installed on it. Of course, there's Dr. Fauci, uh, Dr. Redfield from the CDC and a Derek Khan from the Office of Management and Budget, which I found to be a little interesting. Why would you need an Office of Management and Budget person on a coronavirus task force? Um, then what we get is uh, uh, March 9th, the CDC comes out in a CNBC article and alerts Americans over 60 with pre-existing conditions that they might be in for a long uh, lockdown because out of safety concerns. And then we get to um, April 24, or excuse me, March 24th, where the CDC is now going to issue this 
transformation of how we're going to record death certificates and, and really de-emphasize pre-existing conditions and comorbidities and call everything COVID-19. I mean, we, we have legitimately on record people who've been in a motorcycle accident and died and listed as COVID-19. These, these are not fictitious things that we've made up. We've, uh, I know um, uh, the state of Rhode Island had over 80% of their um, fatalities at one point in either assisted living centers or um, hospice care, you know, and it's like, why are we testing people in hospice care and life care, which is another interesting question. And what that takes us to ultimately is April 14th, where April 14th, the CDC does another thing. They grab a position paper from a nonprofit, the Council for State and Territorial Epidemiologists. And this position paper identifies every single methodology for how to report a probable COVID case, a confirmed COVID case, a epidemiologically linked or contact traced COVID case. And what's so incredible about this doc is the standard of proof for a probable case is literally one cough. That's all that a physician needs to do in this document to validate that that person is probable COVID. Yeah. And then it gets worse. Uh, on page six of that document, section 7B, it explicitly states that they are not going to define a methodology to ensure that the same person cannot be counted multiple times. So what we end up with is a revolving door now in terms of new cases. The same person can be counted over and over and over again without being tested, without having any symptoms. All they need to do is be within six feet of someone and let, and then a contact tracer can say, okay, well, that person's positive. That person who can't go back to work until they show a negative test. Well, let's say they get tested 13 times. Guess what happens? That's 13 new cases when it's really should only be one. So there's major flaws in this. And the issue that I think a lot of scientists like myself and, and uh, people far more prominent than me have with this document and its adoption is there was no oversight and there was no public comment period to question some of the flaws, the obvious flaws in what they were defining as data collection, let alone to ask a very simple question. You're the CDC. You're supposed to be the pinnacle of this. Why do you need to outsource rules and criteria for data collection to a nonprofit entity. That doesn't make much sense to me. I, I don't know. Call me crazy, but that doesn't make much sense to me. Has there been any investigation to identify the specific individuals in these organizations that are responsible for it? I know it would take a lot of legwork and investigation, but uh, it might uh, bring up some really interesting findings. Well, we, we have a, a starting point. What's very interesting about that Council for State and Territorial Epidemiologists position paper is that we have um, the authors listed on there, and they're not coincidentally the heads of several state health departments. But what's also interesting is that we have at least five listed subject matter experts directly from the CDC. So they're starting points. But again, that's where we feel like a grand jury investigation with the ability to subpoena records would be able to use those people as starting points to so is that, unearth. Yeah. Is that, is that uh, attempt to initiate a grand jury investigation in process now? And it's, it's in process. 
And can you describe a little bit more about what that process looks like and the likelihood of that succeeding? Well, um, <laughs> let me, I'll tell you what we've done. Um, we took our paper and we had our team of attorneys also uh, put together a formal uh, grand jury uh, petition, um, which all Americans have a right to petition for. Is this uh, done by, at a state level, not federal? We did it at both state and federal levels. We um, have sent uh, physical copies to every U.S. attorney and their aides. Uh, we sent out over 247 mailings in October. Uh, we've gotten zero response on any of them. We sent out uh, additional 20 to 30 um, to various people at the uh, Department of Justice, and we've gotten zero response back on that. We've also sent out um, accompanying uh, digital email communications with all the information, including the formal petition, and we've gotten zero response back on any of that to this point. So what we've begun doing is having private conversations with um, elected officials who are willing to talk with us and seeing what they can do to help urge the slow wheels of justice forward on this issue if it's going to be um, moved forward at all. But um, as of today, I, I wish I could report something for you and your audience that we are underway and, and things are in motion. But um, no, they, this is where we are. Yeah, there could be a variety of different reasons for that. But uh, it seemed like it would be helpful to have some insider within the, the bureaucracy to grease the wheels and, and have the appropriate people have a serious analysis of the data you collected. That's all right. We got our fingers crossed. The, the good news, I think, for the audience is all we need is one. All we need is, is one U.S. attorney. All we need is one person at the Department of Justice um, to, to take up the cause, and then it can really go um, into motion. Hopefully do something similar to what the Department of Justice just did and course correcting Purdue Pharmaceuticals you know, with their Oxycontin, um, was it an $8.3 billion settlement or some pay, payoff? You know, yeah, um, I mean, it is, I think that was done more for window dressing and it sounds because it sounds really good. It sounds like a big award. But I mean, literally, they killed hundreds of thousands of hundreds oh. of thousands of people. They killed just for the money. They knew it. It wasn't like a, an accident. They willfully engaged in that behavior. And the, and the Sacklers weren't stupid. They're very well. They're billionaires, multi-billionaires. Mm -hmm. And they safeguarded their funds. They essentially liquidated the assets of the company and the company is bankrupt. So mm -hmm. they can get a judgment against them, but they don't have no funds. So mm -hmm. essentially the U.S. government is not, this is like, the, it is so hard to believe it occurred, but they actually, the U.S. government now owns that company and they mm -hmm. are making the opioids. Mm -hmm. They've taken it over. Mm -hmm. And the, the punishment being administered, the sacklers for killing all those people, this, I mean, it doesn't appear they're going to have any, criminal penalties, which is just outrageous. We, we seem to be um, in an era that is bereft of, of real justice. It's a lot of window dressing. And, and our hope is that that is not what occurs with this. And we're going to keep marching on until we you know, get either a firm, yes, we're moving forward, or a firm, no, this isn't going to happen. Um, but uh, we, have, we share your concerns you know, with the um, the de the de-evolution de of, of our, our justice system, at least the appearance of it. Well, let's go into these numbers again, because I think it really focuses on 
how they're being used to justify the draconian measures that have been implemented and appear mm -hmm. that they will continue to be implemented, which is mm -hmm. the lockdowns and the shutdown of the economy. I mean, mm -hmm. literally the biggest shutdown probably in the history of the humanity of what yep. they've done. Yep. So, and the justification is they're basing this on science. And the science is that they artificially inflated, manipulated, changed the definition of a death Mm -hmm. To the point where there's 16 times as many people who are dying, who truly died from the disease. And then if that isn't, wasn't good enough and people didn't get it there, or they uh, sorted through the data and uh, the, the manipulation, then they inflate the cases. And a case right. is supposed to traditionally supposed to be a person who has an illness, who is symptomatic. Yes. Sick. Yes. Now they've change the definition to the cases, anyone with a positive test. So there, there are, as there, you mentioned, there's so many things wrong with that because a single person could test positive. Now I'd be counted 20 times. And that's assuming the test is a gold standard that every time it comes back with a positive, right? We know that's not the case. Mm -hmm. This is a very inaccurate test mm -hmm. that almost rarely comes up with a, with this, with a, a result that's synced with reality. So they're using this to, to again, is these two data points, the deaths and an inflated case number to mm -hmm. cause fear, one of the most powerful, motivating human emotions to get people in line with their measures. Otherwise, if they weren't afraid, they wouldn't listen. They'd violate this and you can't Literally, oh, yes, you could try martial law against the whole country, but it, that doesn't work too well. You, it's far better to get people to cooperate with you mm -hmm. than it is to uh, use force to implement your, your strategies. Yeah, all, all facts. You know, we, we just looked at the data from Oregon for last week, for example, for your audience, and they're saying that cases are on the rise. Right. Well, I'm sure uh, they are by their definition, <laughs> by by their loose definition of we can count as many probable people who cough <laughs> one time and you can be counted multiple times and there's no control mechanism to stop the revolving door of the same person being tested over and over again and counting. Yes. So when we looked at, up close at their data from last week, um, uh, roughly 27 percent of the people who were said to be positive actually had a positive test. That means that, you know, 73% were just said, yeah, we think you got it. And that's good enough because science, right? Because we're in this faith-based model of science instead of a confirmability, a verifiable framework for science, which we're supposed to be based on. When we look at this, you know, this stuff like this that blows me away, doc, you know, we get into... On June uh, 16th, um, excuse me, on June 13th uh, to July 16th, the CDC specifically enacted what's called a test-based strategy, which we've never done before in medicine for anything. And what that test-based strategy means is if you test positive, you got it. But what they didn't do for the PCR testing was they didn't identify, well, what's the agreed upon number of cycle times across all states, across all labs that are testing? And what most people don't know is that the closer you get to zero in terms of cycle times, the more likely that the result's going to be negative. The closer you get to 60, the more likely that it's going to be positive. Well, we've never seen a document coming out of the FDA, coming out of the CDC, coming out of any of the state health departments that says we need all labs to be at this specific cycle time. And if a person is not 
pos deemed positive with that number of cycles, then they are not positive. So that's there's there's just flaw yeah, it's, after it's flaw worse after than that flaw. You can almost figure it out yourself if you know what the cycle time is, mm -hmm. but they won't they don't tell you. I don't even think you can find you out can't what get the it. Time it is of the lab that did the test. Oh my so, god. I think it's by decree, it's almost all of them are over 40, and your the likelihood increases almost uh exponentially as to increasing pauses, where even Fauci himself said the cycle time should be closer to 30, maybe 25. Right. You know, something more cl closely resembling the truth. Early on, what we were able to find limitedly, and, the, and, and this is only out of a few labs, was that the cycle time was ranging between 27 and 30. Mm -hmm. Recently, though, and we're still trying to confirm this, the CDC has put out privately guidelines saying cycle time should be roughly 45 or higher. Which, <laughs> that which, is it, it guarantees a positive result. Yeah, there's, you know, that is not aligned with with scientific objectivity and seeking to find the truth because it, it, it's aligned with the, with seeking to uh, per, perpetuate a narrative. There's, there's the only justification for that decision. With all things being equal, the most likely result is a likely conclusion is probably the right one and that's where you that's that's where we get to so it's the only thing we're left with when we're when you're being really objective investigative it's the only thing that you can really come to with it you know we looked at a document that got leaked from um, uh, a state health agency um, uh, two days ago and it was talking specifically about cycle times four pages of them specifically declining to mandate a cycle time across all labs and 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 giving excuse after excuse after excuse as to why they couldn't and and, and it's like look if you don't want to if you don't want to choose a specific cycle times 30 right fine okay fine at least define a range 27 to 32 something in there at least be specific and, and here's the other thing when when you are recording that a, a test is positive. Can we just have some basic controls in there? Some basic controls of the person's name, the person's date of birth, the person's, um, I don't know, state issued ID. And, 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 and can we just simply put in how many cycle times that person tests? It's, they're acting like this data, which exists, sure. shouldn't be recorded. It's easy to do, especially with blockchain and metadata. Oh, it's so simple. Yeah, but I, let me just back step a bit because uh, we're assuming that uh, everyone watching this or listening to it knows what a cycle time is and what the te PCR test is involved. Essentially, right. uh, it, it, the cycle time we're referring to involves the step that's called amplifying and multiplying right. of the whatever you're seeking to identify. In this case, it's the probably spike protein of, of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, that they're that they're amplifying and it, it's 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 there initially in such minute amounts that there's it's it's absolutely at this state of time uh, impractical to identify in its in its native state. So they have to multiply it, and the more times you multiply it beyond the numbers that we're talking about, or the CT, the cycle time, which refers to that that uh, cycle of amplification, is the more likely. If, if you get after 40, you're almost guaranteed you're, you're approaching 100% positivity rate because it, 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 it could be any segment that could be artificially ampli uh, multiplied and, and misinterpreted as being truly positive. So it's a really important part. And we've got some videos on, uh, that will probably 
be having before this interview airs that goes into more detail. But it's it's an important thing to know because it's not that hard of a concept to, to comprehend, but it, it but it really helps you understand how they're getting away with this uh, uh, sleight of hand in order to to justify the higher higher uh, case rate. You know, I, I think the thing I have to give the folks that have been involved in this, you know, credit for is the incredible number of sleight of hands. So it's a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here. And what that happens is it leads to something that is very dangerous scientifically and very dangerous for public health policy, which is control of data, the ability to manipulate data, and therefore the ability to inflate or as um, the uh, as, as Joseph Biden says to turn the dial up or turn the dial down when you read through his interpretation of how we have to look at COVID-19 and really all infectious diseases moving forward. We have to get into this mindset of we have to learn when to go back in and hide in our homes and close our businesses versus when it's safe to come out in the public. We have to we have to look at this. And it's like, okay, first of all, that's a flawed thought process to begin with because we've never done it in human history and, and we've gotten this far. But the second thing that really bothers me about it is if we're not going to have an absolute transparent and verifiable data collection process that is based upon accuracy and integrity of that data, then you can turn that dial up and down at your at your whim. You're, you might as well just write numbers on a chalkboard because you'd be just as accurate um, when you look at it through that ways. And, and I think, and I, my hope is that the objective scientist within all of us understands that this is bigger than politics. This is beyond it. This is, this is yeah. something that is a severely broken system that we have to fix, you know, and we better do it. Well, now. it's, it, it's broken, ostensibly broken from our perspective, but the reality may be something quite different in that there is uh, appears to be an effort as you referenced earlier with the, um, uh, event 201 that was held in October of, of last year, which preceded the pandemic, that suggests there's some planned, which you know many people call this a planned planned endemic, uh, and uh, the, the intention of that, the World Economic Forum is, was a participant in Event 201, and they they've came out with this great reset now, this technocratic effort to transition mm -hmm. out of politics and have the technocrats, the scientists, the technician use their falsely collected data to, mm -hmm. to guide the whole social structure and actually faci facilitate the greatest wealth transfer, transfer in, the, in the history of mankind to the point where, I mean, it is, I'm sure you've seen the videos that they put out. I mean, this is not hidden. This is not like some, some uh, conspiracy th theory. This is but the, the, they're, the videos that they're putting out. And if you don't know, the World Economic Forum is the same group that puts out Dav Davos. Mm -hmm. where these political leaders go to. And, and they're, they're saying that we ultimately are going to be happy to own nothing. Mm -hmm. We'll mm -hmm. be happy to own nothing. Mm -hmm. It's just mind-blowing. So, you, you know, it's likely that there's these people in charge who are using these strategies because they've uh, essentially captured in the United States, at least most of the federal regulatory agencies and they're mm -hmm. like the CDC mm -hmm. and they're able 
to get in there and control it and manip- make change the definition mm-hmm. so they can get this data, which they know through their artificial intelligence and deep learning means will absolutely generate the proper amounts of fears so that they can get away with these draconian measures and start limiting our poli- po- our, our uh, freedoms and, and, uh, and liberties. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it seems to me it's all planned. This is not an accident. This is not like, oh, someone messed up here and let's, let's just tell them and they'll fix it. Uh-uh, no, this is right. far bigger than that. Right. Let, let, me, let, me, let me add to your point with that. So August 23rd, 2020, CDC reported uh, 32,582 fatalities for the entire state of New York. The New York State over what, what for that month for uh, to the accumulation oh, to, the, to that point to that okay. cumulative to the two uh, August twenty third. Okay. So thirty two thousand five hundred eighty two. That's what the CDC is saying for the state of New York. Now the New York State Department of Health reported on that same day twenty five thousand two hundred eighty two cumulative. That is an inflation by the CDC of seventy three hundred fatalities. And I've been following that on a weekly basis for months. That number just continued to grow. At one point, it was in the 2000s. Now it's at 7,300. And what happens is now, instead of looking at this as, how is this impacting real human lives? What is the, what is the real emotional cost of, of, of knowing that your mom or your dad died alone? What is the real cost of, of, of those things? We're now just looking at death in terms of, of numbers. And it really, it really separates us from the humanity of, of what is going on. And it gives us, and we're given numbers that are virtually impossible to validate, which again, speaks to your whole thing. If you can control the data, you get to control the narrative. And if you can control the narrative, you can put together really whatever plan you want because people are going to be complicit in their own. And I, I'm going to use this and some people aren't going to feel me on this and I don't care, but people are going to be complicit in their own slavery. You know, people are going to be complicit in putting digital shackles around themselves and really restricting well, you know, their not, civil liberties. A, certainly not a, a stretch when you lose your personal freedoms and liberties. I mean, that's a path of tyrant- tyranny to, that leads to slavery and has in many cultures in the past. So hopefully people will begin to understand how these numbers are being manipulated to uh, essentially control the narrative and, and generate fear, need, not needless fear, yep. unjustified fear on the result of inflated numbers that will cause you to comply with these recommendations and, and view anyone who opposes this or even suggests to be a conspiracy theorist who is <laughs> shut up and just mind your own business, stay out of politics. Well, and, you know, the, you know, this is not your job, you know, just comply and be a slave, you know, and just allow yourself to be tyrannically ruled, which is, you know, that I never signed up for that. Right. America. If you're an American, we're not the land of the free and the home of the brave. We're the land of the manipulated and the home of the obey, you know, and when we look at this, it's, you know, I, I had my son ask me something a few weeks ago that I thought was really insightful. He said, Dad, you know, if this is as bad as they say it is, mm-hmm. how come we don't see more homeless people just dead on the streets? And I said, wow, that's, that's pretty insightful. That's a nutrient, you know, deficient population. 
right? They should be among the highest risk. The social distancing, the education isn't there. The hygiene for, for all intents isn't there. But what are we, we are not seeing that, you know? And, and it just starts, it, there's, there's so much about this that doesn't pass the basic objective smell test that what we are starting to get into, I, I'm concerned about is information overload of how many problems there are. And what the question I get most often, and, and I would love to get your insights on this, Dr. McCola, is I have people coming to me every day saying, I don't know who to trust. Who can I trust? What would you tell somebody? You know, what do you say to somebody at that point, you know, who says, I don't know what to trust? What do you tell folks when, when they ask you that? Well, I don't have many people asking me that because we, oh. you know, hopefully they trust what we're, we're saying. So they come to our site, but they're, we're certainly not the only one telling the truth. There's many other truth tellers out there on this, mm. on this area, dozens. And unfortunately, most of them who aren't careful when they do it, they get banned from their platform such as, mm-hmm. and we've been banned, banned essentially from Twitter. It's the only one, I think maybe Instagram. I mean, they won't put a link up to us anymore. But we still have our YouTube channel, but we have to be careful what we put up there. Otherwise, they'll take us out, too. So uh, you just have to understand the mainstream media is not really going to is is not really the greatest strategy to identify where these sources are. But it's just careful analysis, just understanding that there is an issue and then listening to them. People, you know, I, I like particularly enjoy Robert F. Kennedy and he's got the mm-hmm. defenders is a good source. And there, there's many other platforms out there that really do a good job so uh just just know that they're there and you you need to investigate yourself just like in the issue of vaccines you know i which i've been a strong proponent and supporter of a nbic which is committed to Mm -hmm. vaccine Mm -hmm. safety and education to understand to do to have informed consent to do your due diligence to to uh, completely examine the issue on all sides and not just listen to what your pediatrician or the public health authorities are preaching at you and to do just uh, be quiet shut up and roll up your sleeve and get your injection mm-hmm. so uh which has some implications of course for potential mandatory vaccines in, in this with this pandemic that are coming mm-hmm. down the road the least studied vaccine in the history of mankind <laughs> right. so but anyway it's another issue so anyway we should we should be wrapping up uh any closing comments you have now and uh places that you'd like people to go to to find more information about what you're doing. Absolutely. And, and thank you for that. Yeah. Um, first and foremost, we want to make sure that, that that anybody reading this understands that we grieve with anyone who's lost a loved one this year. And, and I know that's a very sensitive topic for a lot of people. We want to make sure we acknowledge that, you know, like, again, my big issue is that too many Americans died alone. And, and you know, I, I understand even if it's a severe case, but a family should have the right to sign a waiver and say, you know what, I'm going to assume the risk and I'm going to go in, even if it means I have to quarantine afterwards. It, that's a freedom that we cannot give up, you know. Um, I, I think, you know, I'm gravely concerned about our children. I think all of our kids need to be back in school and, and we can set up a hybrid education or at home for the families that are concerned, but our kids need to be back in their social networks. The risk of a child dying from this is, is almost zero. I mean, unless they're morbidly obese and they have no vitamin D in their blood, they're not going to die from this thing. They just aren't. It's actually less than the flu. The, so, the oh, probability no comparison and it's just yeah. it's shocking that they're getting away with this, this exactly 
Exactly. And, and, you know, I definitely wanted uh, to give, um, you know, big time gratitude to all the first responders that went out there and, you know, ran into the breach without being properly educated or informed or armed to help people, because I think that speaks volumes of what our country really is, you know, at our core. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, when we look at this, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when we look back on this and we go, Ooh, we almost fell for one, you know, but we, we woke up in time and we figured this out. And now we have a good balance of technology, but technology that doesn't have the right to censor us, technology that doesn't have the right to control us, that we have figured out that having too much control in the hands of too few is not a good recipe for us as, as a species, you know, on this planet. But, um, you know, I, I think for me, uh, with all Americans is we know it doesn't pass the smell test. So it's important for us to get informed and educated and it's papers like this. And this isn't the only one out there. It's papers like this that have done the homework. If we're going to trust someone, it's important to me that we trust people who've done the homework and have no vested interest in the outcome. My team is a team of volunteers. We all do this in our spare time. We're not making any money and we're not going to seek to make any money off of this. We're doing this because we believe in this country. We love this country and we love the people of this country. And I, I'm going to tell you, when I see people suffering, for me, it's straight up. I, I have to help. I got to get in and help. So if you are an American that wants to help, we are setting up resources for you to be able to get engaged and to help us push this forward, maybe grease some of these wheels of justice so we can get a, an independent grand jury investigation. Uh, you can reach out to us at allconcernedcitizens at protonmail.com. We will have a website up shortly and we're in partnership with a couple of really cool folks who um, are creating a platform where we can disseminate this information really easily. And we're hoping, Dr. McCola, that we can provide that information to you and your team and, and that you'll be in support sure. of dissemination of yeah, it. We're, we're happy to put it in the article. So, well, thanks for all the work that you've done and in efforts to help address some of this, these injustices with respect to manipulation of the data. So, appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure.